And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, live from the land of enchantment, of the other side of midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, where everything is up for grabs and is fair game, up to and including what Art Bell told me many, 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 many years ago when he conned me into doing this show. <clears throat> he said, Dick, he said, never, ever do two things on your show, politics and religion. And tonight we're going to do both because art is not around except in a hyperdimensional realm. And I do not say that lightly. Uh, we have evidence. In fact, uh, toward the end of the show, Georgia and I are going to have a conversation about the most astounding evidence far beyond my personal uh, experiences over the last several years since Robin uh, so untimely left me in a way that was it, it, it's still it's uh, I, I can't really talk about it but I know she's somewhere and the reason I know is because there is communication between dimensions although the bandwidth appears to be really, really low. And we will define all those terms as we go along. So tonight we're going to fuse, I really shouldn't say just religion because it's much bigger. It's, it's, it's even bigger than spirituality. It's metaphysics. Remember, meta, everything. The everything physics. That's what the physics of hyperdimensional reality is all about. It's the whole nine yards, the whole Megillah, it's everything they wrote and then some. It's the whole ball. How many more cliches can I think of on the fly tonight? Okay. Anyway, we're going to get into all that. And we have a very interesting field of players who have very strong and opposing points of view. We will all keep it civil. We will try to provide evidence to support our positions as diverse as they are. And maybe we'll all make it through the evening and come out alive on the other end. <clears throat> I keep thinking of Art saying, never, ever, ever. He had very bad experiences when he delved into politics on the air. So hopefully tonight, given we're kind of approaching this from a very, very different angle, I think it's probably unique in a world where that word is so overused. Our approach tonight to the 2020 midterm election is, I can almost guarantee you, unique in a world where that word is incredibly, horribly overused. So without further ado, let me direct you, all you new listeners, um, a lot of people I know have come over from uh, Georgia's show on Coast to Coast, because I was on Monday night for a couple of hours, and George very graciously let me plug this weekend, and the weekend shows are actually kind of connected. And I'm, I'm sure I can hear some of you saying, wait a minute, what connects hyperdimensional election analyses with the Artemis One first return mission of a human-capable spacecraft in 50 years? What could possibly connect those two events in time and or space? And I can answer you in one word, and we will obviously amplify this as the evening progresses. The one word is women. And we'll just kind of leave it there for the time being. So for all you new people, let me tell you how the show works. We have a very, very interesting homepage. You have been to it. That's how you got here if you're listening to us. At the top of the homepage, there is a banner which says very boldly in the way that Kintia can only do banners. And we're so lucky that she's still able to do those. Um, it says, against the backdrop of the eclipse of the moon, the total lunar eclipse that occurred on the evening, actually the pre-dawn hours of November 8th, before the evening, the afternoon and the evening rolled around. Uh, total lunar eclipse, November 8th, 2022, Eastern Standard Time, and the title of tonight's show, Hyperdimensional Debrief on the 2022 Election. So you click on that banner, that takes you to the guest page. Right under the banner on the guest page, you will see where it says um, to listen to the show. Then it says guest page. Under that, it says fast links to items. Those are links directly to 
postings that various participants in tonight's show have posted in their section down on the page. So for you know, quickly getting there, you click on my name. That takes you to my section of Radio with Pictures, and we shall begin. Um, number one, the first link is to the Artemis One uh, blog, which NASA very gracefully has posted now for many years. It's only kind of gotten interesting in the last few months, given that um, they tried their first attempt at launching it back in August of this year. And there were various technical problems, primarily um, involved in the taming of liquid hydrogen, which is an incredibly tiny molecule. It's smaller than any other molecule in the periodic table. It goes through seals, it goes through filters, it goes through even some pipes it will go through because it's really, really, really tiny. So having quick disconnects where when when you're filling the tanks uh, with hoses and there has to be couplings, like in, you know, filling your gas tank, those couplings have to be uh, mechanically arranged so that when the rocket is leaving the ground, it does not take the hoses with it. <clears throat> so that's what's called a quick disconnect. The problem is that if you have anything less with liquid hydrogen than a really permanent connection, uh, a seal and a coupling and all that, um, it's really, really difficult to get the quick disconnects not to leak. And there are very stringent boundaries on how much those seals can leak because hydrogen and oxygen in the same environment are explosive. And all it takes is one little spark and you have another Hindenburg on the pad. And if hydrogen and oxygen in separate tanks were to mix on the pad explosively, the result would be the equivalent of a tactical nuclear weapon. This was true back in the days of the Saturn V. And I remember when I would used, used to watch, uh, you know, a lot of the Saturn Vs, I was incredibly lucky as part of my uh, job with CBS, I got to go down and see a lot of launches from a little over three miles away. That's the distance between pads 39A, which now, of course, Musk and SpaceX uh, are, are renting, and 39B, which is the new moon port uh, launch pad, um, 39A, 39B, A, B, 1, 2, 2 into 39. Oh my God! 19 point, I mean, come on, NASA cannot do anything without a hyperdimensional ritual. Get used to it. If you're new to the show, you're going to hear a lot about it with evidence because that's, uh, that's how they roll. Anyway, so on Monday night, um, uh, I'm sorry, Wednesday morning, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, really, really early, uh, they were supposed to launch at 1.04 on Wednesday morning, East Coast time the Artemis One unmanned mission after several attempts because of leaking hydrogen seals from August through um, November. Oh, and uh, a couple of hurricanes, one of which required them to roll the stack, as it's called, back to the vertical assembly building, actually the vehicle assembly building. You'll remember the, uh, the joke that uh, Kennedy made to James Webb when Webb was taking them around Cape Canaveral way back in the 60s when they were building and bulldozing and pouring concrete and building America's first spaceport, um, James Webb and the open convertible, as they're driving by launch pad 39A, I believe, uh, I'm sorry, back to the VAB, he said, and here, Mr. 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 President, here is our vertical assembly building. And Kennedy kind of looked at him sideways in the Cadillac in the back seat. And he said, well, that's great, Jim. How do you assemble a vertical? From which NASA immediately changed the name to Vehicle Assembly Building. Still the same initials, V-A-B. <clears throat> but it was called vertical because for the, for the first time in the history of rocketry, the Saturn series that would ultimately launch the Apollo spacecraft the uh, command module and the service module and lunar module to the moon was not assembled in a horizontal way, which had been the way rockets had been assembled before, first stage, second stage, third stage, and then lifted into a vertical position. They were literally mated, the term is used, 
um, in a vertical position in the vertical assembly building, ergo the name that James Webb immediately when the uh, president called his attention to the kind of inexplicable, how do you assemble a vertical change to vehicle assembly building? And you can file that trivia away because you'll never hear it again. Well, maybe not. Anyway, so if you're in item number one, which is the uh, Artemis blog, you click on that, that takes you to the Artemis blog page. And right there at the top of the page, you will see this really interesting wide angle view of the um, uh, Orion spacecraft en route to the moon from one of its color cameras mounted on the tip of one of its solar arrays. There are four of them, each about 25 feet long, extending out in a kind of a windmill pattern. And they can be changed in angle. They can be rotated. They can be moved so that they withstand the forces of uh, uh, mid-course correction burns from the rockets. Anyway, um, there are some videos that are available, some really amazing videos. And what we're probably going to do, since NASA will continue to change um, uh, this, uh, what you do is you want to scroll down on that page to where it says Orion conducts first spacecraft inspection exceeds expectations. If you click on that picture, that will take you to a Flickr link, which actually has three videos that have been downlinked from the uh, spacecraft as it goes toward the moon. If you look at that second picture, the one uh, in the section, uh, Posted November 18th, Orion conducts first spacecraft inspection. That little gibbous circle right above the solar panel, that's the moon. Okay. And uh, it's it's very small, but uh, this was taken about halfway between Earth and moon. The moon is really tiny. I mean, cosmically speaking, it's really tiny. But in terms of an Earth-Moon comparison, it's one quarter the size of the Earth, so it makes it the largest planet-satellite combination in the solar system. And even though Pluto has a bigger moon relative to its size, remember, technically, they um, uh, degraded the status of Pluto from planet to dwarf planet, which allowed the Earth-Moon system to regain its title of double planet of the solar system. More trivia. Um, 1A, right below item number one, this is really important. Uh, when, when I was at CBS, we would get these voluminous press kits, which were like everything you ever wanted to know about Apollo, the Saturn V, the guidance system, the navigation, the, the flight plan, what the astronauts were going to be doing moment to moment to moment. All of that was in this very large sheaf of papers that we would put in these big loose leaf binders. Remember those? And we would trek around and carry, I mean, Walter used to carry like five or six of them. It was, and then he would sit by the pool in Florida before we would get to the, uh, to the pad and to the um, uh, studio there uh, next to the vertical vehicle assembly building. And he would sit by the pool in the days ahead of the launches and read through all these incredibly thick, loose-leaf binders that had everything you'd ever want to know about the spacecraft, the astronauts, the mission, the flight plan, the timeline, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, NASA has come up with a more abbreviated version of this old Apollo flight plan, and it's there in item 1A. It is the Artemis Reference Guide PDF. If you really want into the guts of the mission, you go to that, click on that, that will take you to the PDF, and you may enjoy at leisure learning all the trivia about this mission and why it's important that we follow it, particularly when we come on the air tomorrow night. We're going to be doing three hours on the Artemis mission and how it could break wide open the idea of ancient lunar glass artifacts all over the moon's surface. And so we will not take any more time tonight, but there is your homework for tomorrow night, the Artemis Reference Guide PDF. Tonight, of course, we're grappling with what happened last week, November 8th, uh, right after the lunar eclipse. You know how incredibly rare lunar eclipses are on election day? 
Um, they're so rare that it never had happened in the history of the United States since its creation in uh, 1789 with the signing of the Constitution uh, last Tuesday night, uh, actually Tuesday morning really early, was the first time ever, and the next time won't be for something like 350 years. So it was really unique. It was unique. And uh, Maria, Maria Wheatley, is going to be joining us in the third hour to describe from a hyperdimensional realm uh, measurements that she has conducted at Stonehenge when eclipses have occurred before to kind of limb out what happens during a lunar eclipse and why it's part of tonight's discussion related to the election. So that'll be up in the third hour, which takes us to item number two. Um, when I originally planned the show for last weekend, which was last Saturday, and then we had the major problems with uh, uh, the computers, um, we did not know uh, two things. We didn't know, I believe, if the Senate was going Democrat or Republican, and we didn't know if the House was going Democratic or Republican. Well, what a difference a week makes, because now we know that the Senate is staying in Democratic hands. We do have that runoff election between uh, uh, Warnock and uh, Walker in Georgia on the 6th of December, but that will add, maybe depending upon which guy wins, either a Democratic senator or Republican senator to the roster, but it will not change the balance of power in the Senate. Um, it's always nice to have more than 50-50, which of course is what the uh, toll now is, and the vice president uh, breaks the ties when there are tied votes, which there have been quite a few in the last two years of the Biden administration. But in the intervening week, the House, which was up for grabs, has now, according to uh, news projections, it has been won with a, a, a margin of, I think, three or four votes. I haven't checked as of this afternoon, but I think they have a three or four vote margin, which means whoever is elected Speaker of the House, it's going to be like herding cats on steroids because it was amazing that Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, was able to do the things she was able to do in the last two years with only a five-vote margin. As you know, the Democrats have been much more unified than the Republicans, who are all over the place with very uh, strong, very strong opinions, ranging from moderate to really far right. And so getting all those congressmen in line behind a unified speaker's position is going to be something which uh, will be to watch. However, it's how did the election results against all odds and all betting and all pundits before Tuesday night and the beginning of the counting, which has taken, some counting is still going on. And this, of course, is, uh, there's nothing nefarious about this. It's simply a measure of the lack of importance uh, in some states for the voting process. Remember, voting is not mandated nationally. It's not a, a congressional mandate. It's handled at the individual precinct level, literally tens of thousands of precincts all over the country vote um, boards of electors, their, their rules, there are state laws, there are local um, uh, regulations. It is an incredible patchwork of individual efforts at an incredibly diversified level. So for all those people who think that elections can be stolen, uh, it's basically impossible for a whole bunch of reasons. It's, it's technically and politically and logistically impossible because it would require such a conspiracy that in an era where one person proving the conspiracy would be set financially for life, it's very hard to imagine scenarios where such situations can obtain. But I'm sure... There will be some voices tonight on our panel that will claim that this election, like the one in 2020, was stolen. And my answer is, prove it. Show us evidence. And better yet, take the evidence to court and win. 
The fact was the Trump administration took 63 cases to court relating to the potential for a stolen election in 2020, and not one of them made it through the legal system. They were all shot down or dismissed or proven to be wrong because the evidence simply wasn't there. And we're not going to relitigate the 2020 election. We have our hands full tonight by looking at what happened a few days ago in 2022. So um, what I'm going to do is go through a rundown of some of the things we're going to talk about because it's my position, my model, that hyperdimensional consciousness was responsible in major form for the incredibly anomalous results of the 2022 midterm election. Now, that's one of a number of hypotheses, and it's been kind of amusing to see all the pundits reversing course and trying to explain away the fact that there was no red wave, there was no red ripple, there was no red anything, and the results were incredibly diverse depending upon what region, what local elections we were discussing, ranging from state houses, elections for secretary of state, for attorney general in various states, for congressmen. Like in New York state, there was a whole uh, series, I think five seats that were supposed to be solidly democratic and they switched to Republican. And no one can explain that anomaly as well as a whole bunch of other anomalies. So by and large, what I've tried to enter into tonight is a serious balanced discussion in kind of considering the unthinkable, which is there may be hyperdimensional forces at work in this election. And how would we see them? How would they manifest? Well, that's the subject of our conversation for the next uh, two hours and 10 minutes. Item number three, as part of looking at the various events that are happening around the world that are also incredibly anomalous, we are watching this extraordinary rise of protest in Iran. Remember, the Iranians <clears throat> are living under a religious uh, theocracy. The, the Iranian government is brutal when it comes to dissent, uh, to internet connections, to women, what they wear, what, how they dress, how they act in public. And recently, in the last uh, um, you know, few weeks, one young woman <clears throat> was taken in for uh, violating the, the dress codes, the very strict uh, Muslim dress codes, by the uh, theocracy which runs Iran, and she never came out. She died in the police station, and the police said she fell. And, of course, uh, a lot of people think that uh, they just beat her to death because she had violated these very strict uh, religious uh, precepts by the... Uh, they're basically religious police that go around and police how women behave and how they carry themselves and what they wear. And I think her violation was that, you know, some hair was showing or something totally absurd and obscene, and she's dead. Well, that triggered a wave of protests, primarily by women. Back to our underlying theme of the night, women who have decided they have had enough. And now the analyses, which you'll see there in item number three, there are serious observers who think that Iran, the government of Iran, the theocracy of Iran is on the edge of perhaps full-scale revolution, even falling, changing hands, primarily because women all across Iran are saying enough is enough is enough. Item number Four. Um, this is from the Guardian. The Ukrainians, um, the literally the day of the election, they've been looking to take back territory that was uh, stolen from the the state of Ukraine by the Russians going back to 2014, and Russia has occupied some serious major regions of the country. And then, of course, um, this spring. Uh, I'm sorry, last winter, 
Uh, they had a full-scale invasion, almost 150,000 troops and tanks and all of that. And there's been this eight, nine-month battle, Ukrainians against invading Russians, to retain their, their territory and to take back what the Russians stole in 2014. Well, there was a major city in the southern part of Ukraine called Kherson, which the Russians occupied early in the, in the, in the current war. And it has been a focal point of contention between the Ukrainians and the Russians uh, for the last eight months. Well, literally the day of the U.S. midterm elections, the Russians suddenly up and left Kyrgyzstan. And in the ensuing days, um, other uh, Ukrainian forces have moved in liberated the citizens of Kyrgyzstan, and now we're hearing all kinds of uh, horror stories about what happened uh, when the Russians were in occupation for those eight to nine months. My point of knitting these three events together under the hyperdimensional model is that each of them, in my analysis, appears to be the battle and the winning by one side or the other of forces between boldness, courage, and fear. And in each of these three cases, um, fear has been suppressed, courage has been manifest, and change has been the result. And we'll go through, I'm sure, in some detail uh, uh, these instances as we move through the morning. So we're basically down to about three minutes till the bottom of the hour. This is the perfect time to set this up. Um, the hyperdimensional cyclic model for both physical changes on Earth and in the solar system and well beyond, all over the universe, in fact, as well as, and the only consciousness we can measure at the moment is here on Earth, changes in consciousness uh, obtained through that same link, that same hyperdimensional connection, was first put into kind of um, institutional form uh, back in 1941 uh, by the creation of something called the Foundation for the Study of Cycles, which was uh, created by an economist named Edward Dewey, who was an economist that during the uh, uh, beginnings of the Great Depression from the 1930s on, um, actually from 1929 through the 30s and then into the 1940s, um, Hoover, when he was still in in office in, as the president, he turned to this economist, Edward Dewey, and he basically gave him a mission. The mission was, and Dewey had a rather sterling reputation, if you go to that link, you will find connections to the Foundation for the Studies uh, of Cycles website that'll show you the founders. It will show you all kinds of back history and uh, legacy material and archive uh, input and papers and writings. And, you know, I've, I've connected primarily to the journal because this is the uh, encapsulation of Dewey's uh, popular book that he wrote in the 1950s, basically the, called The Case for Cycles. And what Dewey found, much to his shock and surprise, um, we're going to have to wait until we get to uh, uh, the next part of our program, which is, whoops, 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 too many pots there, which is because we're at the bottom of the hour. You're on the other side of midnight. When we come back, I will finish my uh, explanation of how the Foundation for the Study of Cycles provides the backdrop for our entire conversation this evening in terms of what Dewey actually found. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
Welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night edition, November 19th, 11-19, of 2022, and our discussion tonight of the hyperdimensional backdrop in our model to the 2022 midterm election. As I was saying uh, before we went to break, if you look at number five, there is a, a link to the Cycles Journal which is published by the Foundation for the Study of Cycles, which uh, after his sojourn with uh, Hoover, who was a president desperately trying to figure out what had happened to the American and then later the world economy, um, Dewey was a very bright guy. And what was more critical is he was a very open-minded scientist because to his surprise and eventually his shock, he discovered not only that economies worldwide are cyclic, but he discovered that there were a whole number of other phenomena on Earth which were equally cyclic, and then the real capper, they all appeared in terms of separate bins of cycles to be synchronized, which was a stunning discovery in the 30s and 40s, something that no one had anticipated. And we will obviously uh, talk in, in terms of detail as we move through the morning as to what this could mean and the evidence and the data that it's founded on. And all of it is based on uh, on that number five link, the, the foundation for the study of cycles and uh, the summation in um, Dewey's bestseller, which eventually was actually uh, published as a paperback I, I have a copy, um, explaining what he found because, um, well, I'll tell you what, let's, let's start with something very familiar. If you look at number six, this is a diagram going back many, many decades showing cycles of sunspots from 1870 to 2010. And you can see that they rise and fall. The height of the little red, uh, yellow uh, vertical lines is an indication of the number of spots counted on the surface of the sun in any particular day. And they go up and down, you know, they fluctuate, but they rise and fall in an envelope uh, of an 11 year encapsulation. Every 11 year years, sunspots peak, and then they go to a valley. They almost disappear. In fact, some years they do disappear. And for months on end, there are no spots anywhere on the surface of the sun. And then the next cycle begins and the surface is populated by more sunspots and they rise over the years and then they peak um, 11 years after the preceding cycle. And this goes on and on and on. And the number of spots can vary per cycle. You can see the graph there, particularly where it gets very tall. That was in the 1950s, 1957, I think, was the peak of sunspots recorded in the modern era, and they've been falling somewhat since. Uh, and this this cuts off at 2010. We're now another cycle past that. And uh, uh, this was one of the best graphics to show the rise and fall over the last uh, you know 100 years, give or take. So I use that. Okay, one of the really interesting things 
about the sunspot cycle is that they don't appear simultaneously as they begin to come back after the old cycle has ended and the new one begins. They don't appear everywhere on the surface of the sun simultaneously. In other words, they don't appear at the equator and at 45 north and at uh, 10 north or whatever randomly. They appear as a series of high-latitude sunspots above 33 degrees north and south latitude. And then as the cycle progresses, as you come to the maximum part of the cycle where the peak of the yellow spikes in number six reside, that peak coincides with sunspots appearing at, wait for it, 19.5 degrees. The, the peak of sunspots over and over and over appearing in the 11-year, give or take, sunspot cycle is 19.5 degrees. And the guy who first figured this out, who noticed it, who wrote it down, was a solar astrophysicist named Parker. And if that name is vaguely familiar, Parker, Dr. Parker, has a solar probe named after him. He's still with us. He's still alive. NASA contravened, you know, 50 plus years of its own history by naming the Parker Solar Probe, which using gravitational encounters with the planets Venus and Mercury is, is losing energy so it can dive within a few million miles of the surface of the sun, hiding behind a conical carbon fiber heat shield where the surface, the front surface temperature of the shield at its closest approach to the sun is going to be almost 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And the only material which can survive that high temperature and and not disappear, not evaporate, is a carbon uh, composite, which is what the heat shield, a very large heat shield, tens of feet across, behind which the spacecraft, the Parker Solar Probe, is hiding in the shadow of the sun shield. And again, Parker's unique contribution to solar physics, which of course is why NASA named its solar probe after a living scientist in contravention of all their previous, uh, you know, naming things after dead scientists, safely departed. No, Dr. Parker is still alive and well in his mid-90s, and his claim to fame, certainly uh, at the top of my list, is that Parker identified first the rise and fall of the soaker of the solar sunspot cycle. And it's actually a cycle of all kinds of surface activity, the rises and fall and synchronization to sunspots. Sunspots are only one aspect of the uh, very um, dynamic surface of our nearest star. The only one we can look at and see details and map geography and fields and coronal flares and prominences and coronal holes and all that. Well, if you look at the bottom, uh, that weird diagram at the bottom of uh, uh, image number seven, this is called a butterfly diagram because when you plot the position of sunspots as they appear during the solar cycle, uh, latitude, which is up and down, against time, which is left to right, each cycle, the sunspots work their way from high latitudes, you know, minus 33 for the southern hemisphere and plus 33, give or take, in the northern hemisphere. And they work their way toward the equator uh, and they peak. The, the number of sunspots and the number of flares and coronal mass ejections and all that peak uh, at 19.5 north and south and then they continue down with diminished activity toward the equator. They don't cross the equator. They just kind of fade away. And for several months, there will be no sunspots. And then the next cycle will pick up again at high latitudes. Well, if you look at number eight, this is cycle 23 and the current cycle 24. Cycle 23, you can see, goes from the mid-90s to about 2009. And then cycle 
uh, number 24, is 2010 to the present, through the present. It ends there in 2020 because this is when the um, when the diagram that I, I, I chose to, to illustrate this ends. The cycle is still, of course, continuing. Um, but again, it starts at high latitude. You can see there 40 degrees, give or take 30 degrees, and then it narrows down to uh, 19.5. That's where the peak is. But you see, this diagram doesn't show the peak. It shows the overall appearance because they make their way toward the equator and then they recycle and they start the count for the next cycle. What's really amazing is if you look at nine, this now is a series of images of the sun taken over the full cycle by one of our uh, uh, solar spacecraft. I forget which one. But you can see the clustering of the sunspots north and south um, with the maximum uh, size and area and extent of sunspots being at 19.5. Um, number 10, this is now general surface activity. This is coronal mass ejections, X-ray flares, visible light flares, um, flocculi in the chromosphere ejections, coronal holes, all of the activity on the surface of the sun mapped against the solar latitudes north and south. And the peak again, look on the right there, is 19.5 degrees. Here's where things get really interesting. Look at number 11. Click on number 11. This will give you a full comparison between the sunspot butterfly diagram on the left and a diagram of cycles on the Earth's surface, beginning with climate and meteorology, and including a lot of other cycles, which are uh, uh, described in the, in the in the book uh, that uh, Dewey wrote, which is up there in uh, item number what is it? Item number uh, five. Okay, but this is this was discovered by a Dr. Leonard Wing. Uh, it's called a longitudinal passage diagram. It's in essence the same geometry as the solar butterfly diagram to the left. And what Wing found to his amazement and confoundment because he had no idea what he was looking at. What he found was that the progression of cycles on the earth, all different size cycles, five-year, three-year, 10-year, 15-year, 100-year, whatever, they followed the same butterfly diagram geometry. They start at high latitudes and they work their way in both hemispheres toward the equator exactly the way the solar cycle manifests itself on the surface of the sun implying, obviously, there's some kind of identical physics driving both phenomenon, but Dewey couldn't figure it out. A whole bunch of other scientists have been at this now for decades. They haven't figured it out. I'm going to have on, I believe in the next uh, week or two, a scientist from the original founding of the foundation who has been working on this for you know, 60, 70 years, and he hasn't figured it out, but we're going to have a lot of fun and a very enlightening evening discussing where the hyperdimensional model might in fact provide, finally, after decades, an explanation for how you can have butterfly diagrams of different cycle phenomenon on a star and a planet orbiting that star, and it's not intrinsic to either body, either object, it's some kind of higher level physics manifesting in the phenomenon available on both objects, even though they're radically different physically, one being a 10,000 degree Fahrenheit uh, ball of plasma and the other being a habitable, solid, rocky body known as a planet, in our case known as Earth. This to me is the most important discovery of the foundation for the study of cycles. And it leads us to item number 12, 
which, as you know, was my discovery, uh, or noting the fact it was discovered all over the world, and it was published, but no one seems to understand what it means, in the COVID daily death count. And for the first time in human history, we had the technology to have people tabulated dying anywhere on the earth within a few days of their death through the internet and through these international uh, collaborative efforts by doctors all over the world. <clears throat> we find, if you look at the uh, upper graph, that's the world curve for COVID deaths. Is the second one is North America. The third one in blue is Brazil. And the final one at the bottom is Europe. Those vertical orange lines mark the peaks and valleys of these cycles and deaths of humans due to COVID-19 were manifestly visible all over the planet in synchronization with a rise and fall in a period of seven days. And before you say, oh, that's the week, no, it's not, because it was not aligned with weekends or weekdays. It was a separate cycle, totally apart from the terrestrial calendars in, in, uh, in evidence all over the planet. So that's one of the things I'm going to bring up with my guest and see if the foundation can bring its resources to looking at these cycles and try to figure out um, at long last why there appears to be. And I think it applies to everything, every life and death, not just COVID. I think the only reason we see it is because COVID mattered and all the other deaths on earth at some level do not matter and they're not tabulated. But my feeling is that life and death itself is on a seven-day cycle, regardless of species, consciousness, um, location, whatever, which means we have two simultaneous geometric patterns going on on the planet at the same time. And it's an enormous field for study, and nobody yet seems to be studying it which of course is all background to what I'm going to propose uh, for the evening, which is that the election um, that occurred in 2022, the midterm just a few days ago, was affected by three hyper-dimensional events which occurred uh, on Earth. And that is the eruption of this extraordinary Tonga explosion that took place at 19.5, give or take, in the South Pacific on January 15th of this year. Uh, and you can see that from item number 13 and 13A. There's the location of the Tonga uh, volcanic explosion. The, the scientists are saying it was a volcano. Um, there's all kinds of reasons to believe it was not just a volcano. And so it's time to get to our guests. So I'm going to call up as our first guest tonight, David Sarita, because David and I did some work on um, on this uh, uh, very, very early in the game, just when the volcano was erupting. And um, David is, is a very interesting guy. He's another generalist. Uh, he participated in our uh, extraterrestrial communications efforts. Um, he lives in Canada. Um, he is, uh, he's made films, he has produced documentaries, Quantum Communication, The Voice from Here to Andromeda, Hope for Humanity. Um, he has been on hundreds, if not thousands, of radio and television shows from Art to George to Jimmy Church to John Wells, Shirley MacLaine Show, Alan Handelman, uh, Alan Eisenberg. He's been on the History Channel. Uh, he's done UFO specials, Seeing is Believing in 2005. Um, you can read everyone's bios on the, on the website tonight. So without further ado, let me start by talking with David about the Tonga explosion because we now have follow-up data. And David, am I right or am I right that there was something so baffling and unique about the Tonga explosion that it deserves to be first in our litany of unusual anomalies that may in fact have affected the midterms in the United States. Well, to what I, what I sent you recently was right, we had the the uh, 
the lunar eclipse, which pulled me out of my sleep. I didn't even know there was a lunar eclipse. And I, I get in front of my computer and I go on space weather. <clears throat> and I woke up just in time for the peak moment of the lunar eclipse. And then totality. At this, yeah, at the start of the election, there's an earth, a new earthquake in the Tonga. And the innermost ring is 19.5 degrees <laughs> in this new earthquake. And I sent... I was so excited I sent it to you, and I didn't even know about what you would be leading into here with 19.5 degrees. That's incredibly interesting about the sun, and and it's it's so shocking because you go back to this mega um, event that we talked about um, months ago, um, which you know when an explosion like this occurs. It's not. It doesn't have like an epicenter as precise as the head of a pin. It's, it's like there. There's a whole region, and and a single degree I think is about 69 miles. And that that one occurred. 19.5 is within the explosion. 20.6, which is the royal cubit, also is within the closest you know part of the center of the explosion. I mean, again, it's, it's. The fact that right upon the election, we would get another, and this was a 7.3 earthquake, by the way. This wasn't a small earthquake. This is, this is at 19.5 degrees, 7.3, right at the start of the election. So I found that to well, be... Well, let, let me interrupt, because if you look at my items 14, 15, right. and 16, um, when, when the first evidence of this eruption broke the surface of the ocean and it was caught on several satellites so we have incredible time-lapse video it appeared as a cube explosions don't normally appear as cubes they're spheres with material blasting out from a center at you know transonic velocities why was this event a cube well of course it turns out that a cube is a double tetrahedron and we have cubical or six-sided craters all over the solar system and I'm now thinking that this was done deliberately the cover story is it was an underwater volcano but in fact someone detonated a hyperdimensional window a device a conduit between dimensions at 19.5 on earth in January and when you say to yourself, well, why would they have done this? I believe, going back to uh, Leonard Wing's butterfly diagram for cycles on the planet, and George and I have had these discussions over several years now, hyperdimensional effects do not manifest themselves instantaneously all over the world unless there are very special circumstances. Wing's diagram just like the butterfly diagram of sunspots, which evolve over years. So if you're doing something on Earth at 19.5 and you want the effect <clears throat> to propagate north and south over time, over ensuing months or even years, you do it in a way that that, that hyperdimensional shock wave or transmission or gate or whatever you want to call it between dimensions opens wider and wider on a time delay basis so on the basis of your calculations the maximum effect takes place in terms of the events on the earth you're trying to affect and again in the model that this was done to change the consciousness of the earth because geologically yeah it produces huge plume and it kicked up a lot of water vapor, but the effects on the geology and meteorology of the planet quickly went away. I think the effects on consciousness have lingered, and they're still going on. Well, what, what interests me even more is when we were, you know, back when this happened, we were tuning into our radios at uh, 432 megahertz and 144 um, megahertz, 144.1 megahertz. Yeah, we were conducting and, our ET communications experiment. Right, and and well, I did some research in the interim since we've been on. You know, I was on the show last, and this is quite shocking. But 
when you go to the birth of the justice system and you think of Moses and the Ten Commandments and Moses and Aaron going going up onto the Sinai, I calculated the wavelength of Aaron's breastplate, and it's exactly 432 megahertz, not 432 kilohertz. It's 432 megahertz. So as a square wave, and it's a third of a cubit per side, it's a wavelength of four, and I've done the math, it's 432 megahertz. So we were... We were working at that frequency, and in fact, for some reason on my radios, I'm getting constant um, chatter at 432 megahertz, and I'm getting nothing at 144. So, well, remember the- Michael Michael Hill's experiments with water, and his geometric plates that Beverly Rubick measured in her laboratory in Berkeley, California, and said that water energized by his geometric plates which are tuned to 432 cycles per second right so that's 432 so there's just factors of 10 right and and when i when i look at yeah the, which are called the, in 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 sound analysis or electromagnetic theory or whatever it's called frequencies harmonics right so you can so then when i measured the the sapphire the, actually the breastplates i mean sorry the plates that carried the 10 commandments which is the birth of our justice system really it's really the foundation of it they they're made of pure sapphire which is an aluminum you know oxide uh, ox, oxide crystal and which is almost as hard as the diamond and so you can't imagine somebody chiseling in with a hammer, these Ten Commandments, because that's not going to work very well. Because you got to hammer into something almost as hard as a diamond. Well, wait, wait, but wait. The, you you but know, the measurement, you, the measurement of the wavelength is actually a square wave, and it's one four thirty two megahertz. So it's one four three point two megahertz. And and the fact that that Aaron's breastplate is four thirty two megahertz, and that's one four three two megahertz, is and that's what we were working with our radios and and. Our, were we did we get a a hyperdimensional impetus at 432 megahertz during the tonga and again why at the start of the election we get another earthquake in the tonga at 19.5 degrees at 7.3 earthquake which is which is not all it's very i thought there was going to be a tsunami actually in that one um and so that's what I've been I've been working on. So the what, system in January was pinged in a huge way, and then right. eight, eleven months later, right at the election, it's pinged again. Again, and in the Tonga, it's it's not it's not the exact spot, but it is it is nineteen point five degrees is right in the inner ring of the epicenter. Well, remember, when you're dealing with real physics as opposed to theory, it's always an area. It's always a window. It's always a volume. It's never the exact number because real world stuff is always approximate. Well, when I say 19.5 degrees approximate, it's like 99.89 or 9% (laughs) accurate. So, I mean, you can't do better than that on a sphere 24,000 some odd miles around, right? It's 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 incredible. It it really is, it, and it's very meaningful. Does, well, it strongly implies someone did it, and then to make sure that the effect carried through, they did it again. And we are at the top of the hour, so we need to pause. My guests this morning are too numerous to mention. We will go through them as we uh, uh, go through the morning here. Um, this is just really really interesting because. We're dealing with hyperdimensional physics, which, of course, in the hands of those who know how to use it, is hyperdimensional technology. And as we've said, based on our work, it not only affects material objects and processes and interchanges and energy flows, it affects consciousness itself. And that's what we're pursuing this morning. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. With a raspy voice, we shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website 
theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.